seven seconds. McIntyre working right side. Lops it off to Jamison. Underneath, Buster Jams! Buster Jams! Six tenths of a second left! Tigers are on top! 75 to 73! They're going to trap. Try to get the little fellow to cough it up. To win it! Here's a look at the game-winning, or what appears to be the game-winning play, down underneath to Greg Buckner, who's been hanging on that rim all night long. What's up, everybody? Not My House is in your house. We uh, got Eric, the co-host, which is me, and Zach, our co-host. Zach, what's going on, my friend? Just excited for our guest today, man. Absolutely. He's a Clemson alumni and was the ACC Rookie of the Year. He was a 53rd overall pick in the 1998 NBA draft by the Dallas Mavericks and played 10 seasons in the NBA, Mr. Greg Buckner. Greg, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, fellas. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on our show. Looks like you were a Hobsonville, Kentucky kid. What was it like growing up in Kentucky? <laughs> uh, man, it, it was cool. I mean, I think it was just like any other kid growing up anywhere else. I mean, we ran around i mean back in the day now these kids don't do this now <laughs> the way we used to play outside and run around and drink water out the uh, water hydrant on the side of the house and things like that but i mean it was fun i played a lot of basketball on dirt and grass and rocks and concrete and things like that and just tried to stay out of trouble as much as possible you know we were talking about that with esteban weaver and, and uh, a bunch of other guys over the last couple podcasts about how the playground game just isn't like it used to be back in the day where you just grab your ball and you'd go and you could literally play seven days a week. Yeah, it's definitely not like that. Now everybody wants a trainer. Uh, everybody wants to be in a, a gym with five or six basketball courts and, you know, lights and, and air conditioner and heater in the wintertime. But like you said, we would go out there and grab a ball. And I, I grew up with two other brothers, so it was always at least three of us to play. And then once you got started, you know, I mean, three or four more other guys would come in and then you – you know, hone your skills on the blacktop or the dirt or the grass, wherever the court was, just to see, you know, sort of who was king of the court. And sometimes you got beat, sometimes you got picked, sometimes you didn't. But that made you tough and that made you want to work on your skills even more. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. You know, we're talking about, like, practicing moves, things like mm-hmm. that you would do on the, on the blacktop to see if you could actually pull it off before you actually even try to play in a game when you were, you know, <laughs> playing. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, for sure. That's a great point. Um so what sports what, what sport got you into sports? Was there a certain sport like a baseball or something like that that got you into sports or was it always basketball? Uh, it was always basketball. My mom and dad both played basketball in high school, so it was kind of in our blood. Uh, my grandmother, when she when I my grandmother used to watch me. So my mom had when she was 14, my dad was 17. So obviously my grandmother was still working and she cleaned houses for a living and she had to watch me while my mom and dad was in school. And she would give me one of those um bouncy plastic balls that you know that you get and play on the beach or something and she put a clothes back in, in the corner and say you know you go take this ball and go in that corner stay out of my way while I clean these houses for these people and I think that that started the love for it and I think like I said it was in my DNA because my mom and dad both played and the city of Hawkersville and the state of Kentucky if you don't play basketball man you're just a sucker and I didn't want to be a sucker to be honest with you <laughs> all those other sports was cool but basketball was like a religion in Kentucky and it was like that in my hometown uh, if people do the research in my hometown we got so many guys that played division one college basketball for a town of you know 20, 25 to 35,000 people, depending on what year it is. Yeah, that's a that's an absolutely great point. What um, 
when did you get, start getting serious about basketball? Like you knew, like this was something that you could do. Uh, when, it depends on how you know. The question is how, when I knew I could do it. And as far as me being an NBA player, I didn't know that, didn't want to be that until I got to college. To be honest with you, and and one of the reasons why you know everybody's dream that plays basketball now wants to be in the NBA. That never was my dream. My dream was always just to get a Division One scholarship and play on Big Monday on ESPN. Was always my dream. And one of the reasons why, because I had a friend, Chris Whitney, who lived right across the street from me, who went in the NBA before me. And, and I was always a realist. And I was like, you know, there's no way two of us from the same city, the same neighborhood, the same street that's going to play in the NBA. It just it doesn't happen. You know what I mean? And uh, so that was never my goal. Uh, but once I got to the, uh, Clemson and won ACC rookie of the year, and then that summer I went to work out with Chris with all the other pros in Atlanta. And I feel like, you know, this is something that I can get paid to do. And whether it's in the NBA or overseas, that started to push me to become a, a professional basketball player where I could get paid and make a career out of it. Yeah. And I always liked your game because you could take big guys off the dribble and post mm -hmm. up smaller guards. Um, I, I bet you're labeled as a tweener a little bit, but uh, who were some of the guys that you studied and really tried to model your game after growing up? Cause I thought your game was fairly unique. Yeah, it was unique because uh, in high school, I played the four my whole life in high school, my whole career in high school. And then um, – but that was during the season. In the offseason, I always played with the ball in my hand like, because that's what we did on the blacktop. And I was the best player. Normally, the best player gets the basketball. So, I would have the ball and play on a perimeter. So, it was one of those things that I played on the post during the winter. And in the summertime, I would play on the perimeter. So, I kind of meshed my game that way uh, throughout what being – back home in my hometown. And then when I got to college, you know, Coach Barnes was a genius. You know, he just – he was one of those guys in college, you know, well, let's go at the, at the mismatch, okay? If they – we know Buck can post up because he's done it his whole career in high school. And if they put a smaller guy on him, we're going to post him up. If they put a bigger guy on him, we're going to put him out on perimeter because I trust his – he would always say, I trust your decision-making uh, when you got the ball out there. So those – that's how I, I became such a unique uh, – type player. And then when I got to the NBA, I got with Nelly, who was the mad scientist uh, when it comes to offense. He always had his perimeter guys play in the post, his bigs play on the outside. And and the, the league defensive rules was a little different back then. So you had to play one-on-one. -on -one. So he put the ball in my hands and let me allow me to make plays. And it just got I got become more confident in the NBA uh, with making those decisions. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about AU because I know AU wasn't what it was back when you played, you know, compared right. to what it is today. But uh, what was your experience like with AU and what are your thoughts on how it's evolved? It's funny because I didn't play AU at all. Uh, my, oh, wow. my high school coach, yeah, Jeff Jackson was one of those guys. Kentucky is this way. Kentucky is a state, back then I should say, was a state that high school coaches, they, they had their guys in the summertime. They went to a bunch of camps, a bunch of team camps. And they always wanted to teach you the game and how to play the team games. And, you know, AAU was more of a one-on-one, -on -one selfish type game that guys go – you put an all-star team together and go out there and press and run and gun and see who, can, who has the best athletes. Kentucky basketball wasn't like that. So we went to a lot of – we went to Western Kentucky's team camp, Louisville's team camp, Eastern Kentucky's team camp, Tennessee. You know, we was all over the place all summer at team camps, learning how to play the game the right way and as a team fashion. So – and – and now, because I have a son who plays AAU and I actually coach in AAU, and I kind of do things a little different uh, than most teams. I just try to get kids that are smart and play the game the right way and put them out there and see if we can, you know, 
outwit the, the ultra, ultra talented guys out there. And, and it's really a lot of talented guys out there with a bunch of coaches that don't know how to coach and don't know how to teach. And it's ruining the game of basketball a little bit. Uh, if you ask me as being a, a coach as with me being a coach as a, my profession, it just, we get guys in the NBA who's, you know, been through the AAU circuit and they just don't know how to play. And it's a shame. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I coach high school basketball and I get a lot of kids coming from their club teams and I, I, I totally get it. It gets a lot more sloppy when you try to start up your season. Um, but I also wanted to ask if you didn't play AAU, what was the recruiting process like for you? I mean, we've heard stories of some wild recruiting <laughs> trips. I mean, did you ever experience anything bizarre like that? Well, recruiting was, I mean, it was, it was, I think normal because, um, I mean, I played, you know, I played at a university heights academy. It was sort of like it wasn't on the level as the Oak Hill Academy at the, at back then, but it was, uh, you know, a smaller version of Oak Hill Academy. So we played all over the country. So we was – and we always had big-time recruits. I, I played with, you know, six Division One players. So I played a kid who played at Duke, which was my little brother. I played a kid who went to uh, watch a kid go to Notre Dame, Tennessee, myself at Clemson. Then we younger kid played at Kentucky. I mean, the list goes on and on where everybody came from my school to play at these places. So, you know, college coaches was beating our doors down because we had guys that was, you know, big-time uh, college players that was older than us. So they would come back and watch the younger group. And that's how we got recruited. We just was in a good situation where basketball was like a religion, like I said earlier. And we all loved it and we all had the grades. And coaches knew we'd be able to, uh, to handle that, that Division One level. Now, hear that, listeners. He had the grades, too. You got to make sure yeah, you get those yeah, grades. For sure. yeah, yeah. Super important, right? Hey, right. Um, what sold you on Kentucky? I, I heard you were considering Providence. So what was uh, – you want to stay closer to home or, or what was the deal? Yeah, well, actually, uh, I, I signed with uh, Providence going into my senior year of basketball. And that's because Rick Barnes was there. And um, – and I and it was a blessing, boy. It was a blessing because I did not want to go to Providence. I did not want to be cold. I did not want to be in the Big East. <laughs> right. I never grew up saying I wanted to play in the Big East. I always grew up saying I wanted to play in the ACC. And Coach Barnes, you know, he's just one of those guys. And and Coach Felton and Coach Shaw, which was his assistant coach, was like, you know, I just felt like I, it was home for me. And then those guys went that year and won the Big East. And Clemson came a calling, and they went to the ACC. And it was like, you know what? And he called me and said, like, Buck, I want you to come uh, play in Clemson with me. And it's like, no-brainer, coach. I'll be there tomorrow. So I went to – I signed with Clemson without even taking a visit, without seeing the school or anything, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up in Jersey. Yeah. And, and, man, the further you go up, yeah. the worse the colder it gets, man. It snows yeah. in, like, September and shit up there, man. No thanks. Right, you. especially from a country boy like me being from Kentucky, man. Right. It, it was just like – I think even on my visit, it was like a snowstorm. And I was miserable, but those guys, it just made me feel like I was at home. And I was just like, you know what? You know, I, you know, they do play on TV and they do get on ESPN. So, yep. you know, I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity. But I got lucky when they went to Clemson. Yeah. And probably nicer to be closer to home, too, right? South Carolina's pretty close to Kentucky. Yeah, it was. Right? And, and just like I talked about that guy, Chris Whitney, who went to the NBA before me, he actually went to Clemson, too. Uh, before me. So I kind of knew of Clemson, had never been on the campus, so kind of knew of it, knew that his family got to go watch him play. And that was big for my mom and my brothers because they just really – and it, actually my teachers would come down to Clemson and watch me play. Uh, obviously my coach – I mean, it was just a good situation where I got to have, you know, family and friends that come watch me play. And it probably wouldn't have happened in Providence. I bet that was a 24-hour drive and Clemson was like an eight-hour drive. Yeah, and then you also got – I mean, the football team's amazing too. 
You know what I mean? So you got <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is now. At the time, it was just okay because Florida State was kicking everybody's butt. And it's funny because I, I never watched college football until I got to Clemson, my, the, you know, my freshman year, their first game. I went there, and I fell in love with it after that. And I never missed a game, no matter how tired I was, no matter how crazy coach was putting us through, uh, how crazy the practices was that coach was putting us through. I was going to watch college football, and now I'm hooked on it. Oh, especially, I mean, like I said, a school like Clemson. Even, I mean, because Clemson had some good teams in the 80s, too. I know there's a little dip because right. Florida State, Miami, there were some teams that were going up against back then that were – you know, very, very oh, yeah, tough. Sure. Yeah. We had Charlie Ward on the show a couple of months ago, and, and he was, you know, telling us about Florida State and whatnot. It was really interesting to hear. You had a big impact on Clemson right away. You led the team in scoring, and you played really confident in the ACC. What was your mindset coming in as a freshman, and uh, who really <laughs> helped credit you for, like, building up your confidence? Man, I was, coming from Kentucky, man, I was cocky as a cocky boy. <laughs> And, and it was one of those things, man. Like, I played against guys who I felt like and played with guys that I felt like in high school was better than that team, guys on that Clemson team. No disrespect for those guys. But I just felt like that, you know, I'd played with more talent and been around more talent. So confidence was never an issue for me when I got to school. I remember my first night there. We had to come for summer school in June. And I get there, and my first night, I'm right off the bus. I had to take the Greyhound bus. I bet kids don't even know what a Greyhound bus is now. But uh, I took the, the Greyhound bus, and it was go straight to the gym to go play. And one of the seniors said something to me, and I was like, man, you sorry as hell. And, and I just, you know, went at him. You know, it's like I'm going at him. But, but that was just my mindset from coming from where I was from in, in Kentucky. That was just the way we talked, the way we played, and, you know, the way we felt. And uh, so confidence was never an issue when I got to school because, you know, I'd played against big-time players, and, and my one of my best friends slash mentor had been in the NBA, and I thought I was better than him. So none of these guys I played with in Clemson was going to be in the NBA, so I felt like, you know, I was better than those guys. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you get asked about this every single show that you do, but the dunk. <laughs> I'm not going to ask the obvious question of if it's your most memorable moment in your career, but what I do want to know is did you know that – if that play was going to be as big as it was when it happened or when did you realize like, this is going to be a really memorable moment in college? Man, that, that is a great question. Nobody's really asked me that question, but that is a great question. I didn't know it was going to be as big as it is now uh, to the Clemson faithful coming to about basketball. It's one of the greatest plays. I think, you know, I think it's like top five sports plays in, in Clemson history may have got bumped down this year because they went in Chapel Hill and won this year for the first time ever. Uh, but I didn't know it was going to be that such a, a significant play until, you know, kind of got started the next year when they put, that was the, the, the basketball poster. And then as you go get older and everybody's talking about the dunk, Buck, hey, Buck, I remember the dunk. And Buck, no matter where I go in South Carolina, somebody knows about the dunk. And, and that started probably, you know, two years after I left Clemson. Um, so I didn't realize at the time it was. I just knew we was going to the second round of the ACC tournament, which they hadn't done in a long time either. And we was just excited about that. Uh, but I didn't know it was going to have such an impact on the Clemson athletic department as it did uh, until probably three or four years later. Yeah, because, I mean, every time I see the highlight, I still get excited. It's one of my favorite yeah. plays I've, I've yeah. seen. I mean, that is that is a highlight, man. But, uh, I mean, you've had some great uh, games and great moments at Clemson, and you went to the NCAA tournament three times, including a Sweet 16 run. But was there a loss that hurt the most? Would it be that Sweet 16 loss to Minnesota, do you think? 
<sighs> it's two losses, and they both was in the NCAA tournament. My junior and my senior year. That that Minnesota team uh, was very physical, uh, very good, very what senior oriented. Had few NBA guys, uh, but we had them beat. They had us down a lot, and then we came in that overtime, and we had them beat, and we had a couple bonehead plays that let them back in the game, and uh, and that was our team that could have went to the Final Four. We could have obviously been the greatest Clemson team in history if we could have let allow that, if we could have held on to that game. So that sticks and that stings. And then my senior year, man, we we went and played Western Michigan in Chicago after having a kind of up-and-down season, and we stunk the bed the first half. And it was all because officiating didn't allow us to play our physical brand. So we had like three starters. Our best three players was in foul trouble. Myself, Harold Jamison, and Terrell McIntyre all in foul trouble in the first half. And so they put up a big lead. So we was fighting and fighting and fighting to never get over that hump. And, you know, that was my last game of my uh, college career. So those two games really hurt for sure. It's hard, too, because it's so mental when you know something like that's happening, right? Like when you know you can't play your game with the officials, and then you you start second guessing everything. You start second guessing how you're how you're boxing out, how your defense right. up somebody. I mean, it's you know, am I gonna get this? Am I gonna get called a charge yeah. driving? You know right, I mean? right, yeah. It's one of those things, man. We was just we was a physical team. West, like if we play anybody else besides Western Michigan, Western Michigan. Uh, I, I'm using this term a lot, no disrespect, but they was a smaller school, so they wasn't as physical, wasn't as strong. They didn't get to eat as well as we did. You know, they didn't have the weight program. So we was just naturally – it's sort of like Shaq in his day when he would just be so much bigger than the other guy. And we was just so much bigger than those guys, and we would barely breathe on They would fall all over the place. And and the refs, you know, was a, uh, I think they was a Pac-12 officiating crew, so Pac, back then Pac-10 was, you know, a finesse league. So they hadn't seen that physicality. So we got, we got you know, messed over, and it cost us, you know, potentially a deep run in the NCAA tournament. It's all because of officiating, and that's how we felt because we clearly was a better team, and we probably was the best team in that, in that, in that little bracket would have went back to the Sweet 16. And once you get there, who knows what can happen. Yeah, and I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the officiating being Pac-10 refs because I think that's one thing a lot of – that the average fan might not understand – the game is almost officiated differently. Uh, I mean, did you do, – do you definitely notice when you see different officials from different conferences officiating your games? Oh, yeah, when I play, for sure, when you're in a tournament. Because, you know, back then, I mean, uh, Pac-10, like I said, up and down, didn't want a lot of fouls, wasn't allowing physicality. Big Ten, very physical conference. They would let you beat each other up. I mean, we would have wars when we would go to the Big Ten and when they would come to us because that's just the way we love that that style of basketball. ACC, because we had that 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 branding of being a physical tough team, they allow us to be a little more physical. Um, SEC was a skilled league. Again, it wasn't allowed them to get up and down, so it wasn't as many foul calls. They said, let those let these athletes play. Uh, Big 12, similar to the uh, in-between, I, I would say Pac-12 and, and the um, – and the SEC is just like let them be a little physical, but not much. But the Big Ten and us and the ACC, they allow us to be physical. And, and some refs wasn't a, wasn't uh, accustomed to seeing that physical brand back then. Big East back then very physical as well. So those those officials would allow you to get away with more. And a lot of times, you know, official was like, "Come on now, don't be soft." And and to hear that, he's like, "Oh, we could be more physical now." You know what I mean? That, that gets your juices really going, and, and then you understand that you in for a war. And, and, and But it was a fun game, and the game might be 42-38 with five minutes to go, and that may be that way in the Pac-12, five minutes to go in the first half. 
yeah. so it's just a diff, diff, different brand of uh, officiating for sure. I think that's the one thing that as fans, I wish we could hear more. I know we can't because of language, <laughs> but I'd pay extra to get it, you know, to be able to hear just, just like the, the, the talk on defense, you know, hearing stuff like that. You know, I, I sat um, second row back from the Knicks when the Knicks were playing the Kings one season and hearing Larry Brown, coach Brown talking shit to Jamal Crawford was like, I right. to me, he's called right. soft. And it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe he was calling him soft. It was unbelievable. It was really, yep. it was really crazy to hear that though. That was the first time I was like, wow, I, I can't believe I'm actually hearing this. This is insane. Hey, let's talk about the draft a little bit. Um, oh, what, was, yeah. what was the draft process like for you coming out of Clemson? Did you have any idea where you were going to be drafted and how did you feel like you performed in your workouts? Oh, well, workouts. I mean, I, you know, that was one place where I was nervous a little bit, uh, out of character for sure. But I, I thought I still played yeah, – I mean, I'm always a good guy that's going to play hard and compete. So, I mean, I didn't shoot the ball well in most of my workouts, but I did compete. And, and you know, people wanted to see if I could shoot because I was quote-unquote like um, you said earlier, I was a tweener. And um, But even though within I had – the Clippers told me, if you're there in the sec first round, at, I think it was 22nd or 20th or something like that, they said, we're going to take you. And then Brian Skinner dropped to them he was supposed to be a lottery pick. He dropped and they chose him. And at that point, I'm, I'm like, oh, boy, th this could be, you know, problems. You know what I mean? I mean, I get drafted uh, for sure not getting drafted in the first round and probably won't get drafted at all because nobody else had said anything like that. Then um, so I had family, of my, just my friends, some close friends that was over just to hang out. And then they was like, oh, we got to get out of here because the draft kept going and kept going and kept going. And <laughs> everybody was getting called except Greg Buckner and uh, – <laughs> And then Dallas, you know, I mean, they 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 picked me, and they never. I never worked out with Dallas. I never interviewed with Dallas. I never did anything uh, with Dallas. And I think, you know, Nelly, being the mad scientist that he is, was like, you know what, this could be a matchup problem. You know, if if he makes our team, and and if he doesn't make our team, it doesn't hurt anyways at the 53, 53rd pick. And um, just one of those things. I mean, it was a lot of lows, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's it's hard too because a lot. I think a lot of listeners don't understand. There's like 450 guys that play in the NBA, but that doesn't right. include all the guys that are already in the NBA. Yeah, so then sure. you got you know you got the first and second round. I mean, the first round maybe you pretty much guaranteed contract. Second round, not so much. So right. you're trying to fight for a roster spot with a bunch of guys that might be you know eight, nine, ten year vets in the league. So what was your uh, what was your training camp like when you came in as a second round draft pick? I mean, definitely stressful, I'm assuming. It was, it was crazy because it was the lockout. It was the 98 lockout when I got there. So we didn't get – I didn't get the typical summer with Dallas, with the coaches, and learn the offense, to learn how to be a pro. I didn't get the uh, October with Dallas to, to, to learn how to be a pro again and all those things. I, we got there. They, they stopped the lockout, I think, January 1 or something. We had to be there January 4, and they had to make cuts by January 11, something like that. So I didn't have a first shot, man. I actually got cut. But Nelly was like, um, because he said, I'm cutting you, but I'm bringing you back. It's just I don't have enough roster spots for you, but I love what you can give me uh, to this team. So he cut me. And, um, and I, went to the, I went back to the CBA and, you know, played in the CBA for that year, finished up, came back to Dallas for summer league, and he, they signed me to a guaranteed contract. Had a microfracture in my knee. <laughs> in August. I hurt my knee in August. So he cut me again mm -hmm. in October. 
but he still paid me. He's like, we're going to pay you. You're going to get your rehab. He cut me in October, brought me back in January, and then I was there. Uh, I was one of his guys from there on. Yeah, and, I mean, that must have built a pretty strong trust with Nelly after him keeping his word on everything that he said he's going to do. So, at least he kept his yep. word on that. But um, I have a question, and we usually get some interesting answers when we ask this, but what kind of rookie duties did you have? I mean, did you have to go get said Sabalos's coffee or Michael Finley's <laughs> newspaper or anything like that? Man, it's crazy, man. I, 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 all I remember is, man, it's one rookie duty I had, and it put me in a bind because – one of the old heads was saying do something, and Nelly was saying don't. And it was A.C. Green. It was the second day of practice in training camp. He takes all the balls. Well, we practiced that at the time. Right above the, the court was a track. He takes about six balls, throw them up on the track as Nelly comes in to say bring it in to the center court. And he's like, Rook, get the balls. And Nelly was like, Rook, you better not take your ass up there. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> What am I going to do? And uh, so he's yelling, get the ball. Rook, go get the ball. And, you know, A.C. Green, I watched A.C. Green when I was four years old with the Lakers. It's like, you know, one, you know, in my opinion, one of the best uh, role players of all time. So I'm looking up to this guy. I can't believe I'm playing with A.C. Green anyway. And so I'm going to do whatever he says. But when Nelly says, no, you better not. And that, then all the other guys is hyping it up, like, go ahead, Rook. What you going to do? And I was like, oh, boy, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, I didn't go get the balls because Nelly said don't go get the balls. And, I mean, he's the guy who, you know, keeps me, on, keeps me on the team and puts me in the game. So I'm going to listen to Coach more than I am going to my teammates. And I just have to take that ass whooping in the locker room if that's what it came to. <laughs> smart. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely smart. That's awesome. Um, what about your welcome to the league moment? And what I mean by that was who's the first guy to really burn you to where you're thinking, like, holy shit, I'm in the NBA? Man, that's it's. I mean, you're gonna say yeah, whatever, but but I can't remember that 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 time, man. I was just trying to keep my head low and and do whatever Nelly says, do whatever Michael Family and Steve Nash says to keep those guys happy. It wasn't, and all I did was play defense. So it wasn't like you know I'm out there shooting a bunch of air balls and things like that. It's just go go guarding buck, and that's what I had done my whole life. So I mean, it wasn't until a couple of years later when Manu Ginobili and then. Uh, Kobe had me a couple games where I just couldn't guard those guys. But other than that, man, oh, uh, yeah, other than that, it wasn't too bad. Mitch Richmond had a good night on me my rookie year, and that's because my best friend Chris Whitney was talking noise to me the whole <laughs> night before and doing the game. It's like, I'm telling you, you think you're strong. He way stronger. So he had mind, he had <laughs> played mind control over me. So he kind of had a good night on me. But the rest of those guys, at that time, man, it was just one of those things where I just got in a good groove of, of knowing guys' tendencies and, and had a good a good rookie year playing defense and locking people up. Yeah, and I mean, that first year must have been pretty wild for you because I think that was Mark Cuban's first year as an owner. And then <laughs> you played with Dirk and Nash when they are young, and then Dennis Rodman comes in. Yeah, mean, yeah, a, a lot yeah. of shit was happening, and there's no way that team didn't party. I mean, that team hey, definitely partied. That's probably when I said, you know, when we picked up Dennis Rodman, that's when I said, Yo, oh, shit, I'm in the NBA now. <laughs> <laughs> that's when I said it. Yeah, that's what I did, yeah. But you're yeah. right. That first year was crazy, man. It was like just, I was just, you know, excited to be in the NBA. You know, Cedric Sabalas was, you know, a guy that you've seen all the time. And uh, Michael Finley was like my vet. He took me on his wings. They, I stayed at his house a couple nights. He fed me, you know, bought me my first suit and all those things. And then all of a sudden Mark Cuban comes in and 
I mean, he's changing the whole environment. He's spending money all over the place. He's putting us on his private plane. My first car was Mark Cuban's old Lexus. <laughs> he's like, you don't, you, you take this car, man. Save your money and all that stuff. And uh, so it was wild, man. We had some good times, and and we ended up playing playing really well at the end. Once we got Mark Cuban, he picked up the spirit, and everybody played better. And it was kind of you know the the intro to us being a parental all-star team after that. I mean, a parental playoff team. I'm sorry, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Cuban was the first guy that really went, like, first class in the locker rooms and changed all of that, right? For the most part, I mean, am I correct? I think he was, man, but you got to understand, I was a rookie, so I hadn't been anywhere else. But I will say the the Mavs organization before Mark Cuban got there and the locker room and what we practiced, it was a dump to be honest with you. He definitely put a lot of money and a lot of emphasis of changing the, the environment and, and the culture around in, in that Dallas Mavericks uh, locker room. And everybody wanted to come to Dallas, so I'm assuming that it wasn't like that anywhere else. Maybe Miami with Pat Riley at the time. Um, maybe New York because they had a, a, you know, a boatload of money. But I can't remember nobody else anywhere else saying that until he started and everybody else had to pick it up to try to keep up with him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask about Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki because you caught them when they were young. But, I mean, what did you see in them that, that separated them from other players? Did you know they're going to be, you know, superstars moving forward? Or what do you think separated them as far as their practice habits or mindset? Yeah, well, I thought Dirk was going to be a Hall of Famer the very first day of practice uh, when we got there. Uh, he was seven feet, and at the time he played the three. And he, and he seven feet, shoot the ball, anchor dribble, going left. And where, even where I was from, we hadn't seen nothing like that before. So I knew he was going to be a Hall of Famer. Nash, not so much. I wasn't too sold on Nash. Nash was a great guy, very good player, but I didn't think he'd be the MVP, a two-time MVP, uh, what, six or seven-time first-team All-NBA. I didn't see that coming for sure. But I always thought Dirk was going to be great. But they both worked extremely hard. I mean, there was, was nothing lazy about him. And one of the reasons why I didn't see that with Nash, because I didn't think his body would hold up. He stayed hurt a lot. When I was in Dallas, he just was just fragile at the time. And then he figured out how to, you know, get his core right and get on those big old physio balls and, and train and train and train. And then he, you know, the rest is history, as we all know. Well, he hit the lane a lot, too. You know what I mean? For a guy that was skinny, like all the, you know, hitting the lane, throwing these crazy passes, doing all this stuff that you didn't really see guys do that look like him. I mean, I, I totally see your point on that. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, he was one of those guys that just – and then Nash, I mean, he's 6'3", six, 6'4", six, but against all these other guys. And at the time, he probably was, what, 180-ish probably at that time. And, uh, and he looked tiny, but he was, he was very skilled, and he knew, and he could shoot the ball, so he could get in that lane because of that. But, I mean, no, back then, the game was very, very physical, man. So they knocked him on his tail. But he could back up, but he also would be hurt. And um, so – if you remember, him and Dirk struggled early. Dirk because of confidence and Nash because of injuries. And people in Dallas wanted to get both of those guys out of there. It was crazy the way the media and the fans was treating those guys. But they worked their tails off and became the legends that they are. Yeah. And you know, there's another kid that came out of high school that had a lot of hype around him, Leon Smith. Um, oh, yeah. I remember there's a lot of hype around him. But, I mean, did you notice that talent right away from him? And I know that he oh, kind of no. went through some off-the-court issues. So, I mean, did anybody try to help him during all yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, Leon Smith, high school kid, I didn't see great talent, to be honest with you, at the time. And everybody definitely tried to help him 
uh, because we all saw that there was some kind of mental issues for him at that time. Um, I mean, it was one of those places where we all tried to do something to help that kid. It's just he needed professional help, and uh, they tried and tried, and it just didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Hey, I got, I got, I got. So you played with Robin for like what ten games? I think that's what this something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't long. You got a good Rodman story in those ten games you played with him. Yeah, it was crazy because Dennis Rodman would take a shower before the game and wouldn't take a shower after the game. <laughs> like, like, what's going on around here? Yeah, so that was the the, the most mind-boggling thing that I probably went through in the NBA was watching him go in there and shower before the game and then right after the game, get on out of there without a shower. So hey, what is going on? You know what the best part is? He's like dating Madonna, marries Carmen Electra. Yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah, think like, maybe I shouldn't shower either. Yeah. yeah, everybody wanted it, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This is crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. so Dallas gets turned around, obviously making smart drafts, you know, Cuban changing the culture. Um, you guys make the playoffs. Um, it, it, how um, how important would you say Mark Cuban was for the whole state of Texas? I mean, the whole state of Texas. Oh, like well, for Dallas. I, I mean, Dallas he put on the map for the Mavericks, right? Basically. Oh yeah, for culture. sure. I mean, for the city of Dallas, yeah, he has to be one of those pillars, like a Jerry Jones, you know, maybe like a Dirk, like a, a Emmitt Smith, like a. Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin, those guys for sure. He's definitely in that in those, that conversation. But the whole state of Texas, I don't know about that because the Spurs really got the Texas locked down yeah. <laughs> with Popovich and the things they did with one and five. But 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 Cube is definitely one of those guys that influenced that 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 whole downtown area of changing changing the way Dallas is downtown. And now was when I first got there, nobody wanted to live downtown. No business wanted to be down there. And then once that arena got there, is condos all over the place there's restaurants where you can eat there's movie uh, which is probably closed now movie theaters are probably closed now but I mean he really changed that whole environment and it, and it was all a lot because of him and wanting to make you know the big D be truly the big D yeah, I thought it was crazy too how hyped up he'd get during the games and run on the court and <laughs> you ever seen something like that before I mean it's <laughs> oh yeah it was crazy I mean <laughs> Guys were getting a scuffle, and Mark Cuban be out there trying to break it up. Yeah. And like, what the hell are you doing? Like, he know, even as players, like, you don't get in between two seven-footers when they throw throwing blows. You just get back, and when they get tired, then you break it up. You don't jump in the middle of it. Cuban's jumping in the middle of it. I mean, you could tell he hadn't been in the streets before. Yeah. He's going to get knocked out by a straight punch. He's probably, he's probably watching too much of Jeff Van Gundy, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, when I see that, I'm gonna do that. No, you get back. Go for the yeah. leg. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah. so talk to us about Don Nelson. I mean, Don Nelson, what an innovative, crazy coach. You know what I mean? I think really smart coach, to be honest with you. You know, he wasn't afraid to try the small, the tall lineups, depending. You know, always seemed like he was a nightmare for mismatches for other teams. What do you think made him so unique compared to some of the other great basketball minds? Yeah, I think, like you said, he wasn't afraid to try something. And I think to be great, you can't be afraid to break the norm. And uh, he's like that. Phil Jackson's like that. Nobody wanted to run the triangle. Phil Jackson ran the triangle. You know, he, uh, uh, Pat Riley had hard practices. Nobody wanted to do those things. Nelly was a genius at putting uh, small guys on the post and big guys on the perimeter. So it puts the other team in a, in a disadvantage because those guys normally wasn't used to guarding it that, that way. And uh, 
So he just wasn't afraid to try new stuff, and he he let the power forward be the point guard for the game. You know what I mean? Just was if he felt like that matchup was going to help him win the game. Now, what would happen was in the playoffs, you kind of figure that out because you had seven games to do it. Uh, but during the regular season, he was a genius because um, he wasn't afraid to try new things and go outside the box. Well, and the, and the playoffs, too, were a slower game, too. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. More physical game. I mean, it's it's a different bird, right? You, you would agree, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah the playoffs, they, I mean, you get the best officials and, you know, the officials doesn't fall for the, the, the little flops and things like that. For the most part, they don't. They allow a little more touching. Um, but the more importantly is, like, what happens in the playoffs if you got mismatches, okay, we're going to put the bigs on their smalls and then our smalls on their bigs, and let's see what they do after that. And then, you know, when you've been playing one way the whole season and you do that, it may take you two or three games to adjust. And if you lose those two or three games, then you have the playoffs. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. you play with Philly – Right, and then you play with Denver. Um, one of my questions for you would be, what was, how hard is it to come into a new locker room, a new system, new teammates, new city? I mean, can you give the listeners just an idea of, like, they just think you just get traded a new team and there you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, man. It, it is very difficult unless you know somebody in that locker room. You know what I mean? And, and, and when I went to Philly, I knew nobody in that locker room. I hadn't played with anybody in there. Uh, Derek Coben was there who was – you know, one of my favorite players of all time growing up. Watching him at Syracuse, I was like in awe when I got in that locker room. Allen Iverson, we're the same age. I think he's a year older than me, same age, but just, you know, it's a legend already. You know what I mean? At the same age, he's a legend. Then you go in there with Larry Brown, who's the head coach, and you won national championships, who's been in the finals, and just a great coach, one of the greatest of all times. And, and the thing that eased me when I got to Philly was Allen Iverson. He came up to me, he was like uh, – Welcome to uh, Philly and, you know, gave me a dap and gave me a hug. And, and then we played five-on-five street ball. <laughs> nice. so he, he welcomed me in that way. And then, you know, those guys was just good guys who brought me in. They had, they had great success before I got there. And they understood that what I brought to the table was going to kind of help them become an even better team. And they accepted me. And then when I got to Denver, it was, a, you know, it was didn't know those guys. Melo just now getting started. Kenyon Martin, I kind of knew a, a little bit of him from the Dallas years because he's a Dallas kid, and but really knew nobody else. You know what I mean? And it was one of those things that they was changing the culture, trying to, you know, build the Denver brand up uh, with Kiki Vanderway. He was the only guy I knew because he was with us in Dallas, and he was the general manager at the time. Uh, but I didn't know anybody there. But the good thing about Denver, all of us was new. <laughs> you know what I mean? So none of us knew each other. So it was one of those things that we kind of grew with each other, and um, but it was a lot of fun being in those locker rooms because everybody accepted everybody for, one, their skill set and their personality, and there was no beef in those locker rooms. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's, it's, you've got to play for some great coaches, like just talking in this conversation. We had Earl Boykins on a few months ago, oh, yeah. and he told us a great story. This story was amazing. He told us about George Carl removing the clocks from the facility because so many guys were showing up late. Do you know anything about that story? <laughs> yeah, we, we had we had a wild crew with that group. <laughs> so, so so I'm sure I don't remember him taking the clocks out because I was always early. That was one thing I was. I was gonna be at the gym early, an hour or two before, so I could get shots up and try to keep my job, you know. So I was never late. But we had some guys that was late and um and George Carl, I wouldn't put it past him of taking it away. I just don't remember it. 
Yeah, he was saying something like he was saying something like because no one was showing up on time for the most part. That basically he just took the clock off the wall, and then when everybody showed up, then you start practice and yeah. still on the yeah. same practice as long as it would be. I just thought that was crazy. Yeah, it, it, it is crazy, but I mean, in the NBA, man, there's some crazy guys. Yo, know I man, you got to do crazy and think outside the box to trick guys, like we like to say as coaches. We got to trick them, make them think it's their idea. And uh, George Call, you know, I mean, being the great coach that he was, he's gonna figure out how to get the best out of his group and try to win games for sure. Yeah, and then uh, you had a second stint with Dallas later in your career. You played with MVP Dirk, and hopefully, this isn't bringing up bad memories. But uh, you were on that team that lost to the We Believe Warriors. Um, I think people forget Don Nelson basically built that Mavericks team and then left to coach the Warriors. But, I mean, what adjustments were you guys trying to make during that series? Or looking back, what do you think was missing for you guys to survive that series? Um, let's go back a little further. The, the two years, that year and the year before, I think Nelly's first year in Golden State was the year before. And I was in Denver that year. Dallas had won one of eight games or some against Golden State. Uh, and then we played – I think we played Golden State our last game in the regular season. They're second to the last game in the regular season. They have to win both games to get in the playoffs. Um, we rested our starters. We rested Dirk. We rested, I think, uh, Jason Terry, rested Stackhouse. And we all knew in that locker room that – we don't want to play Golden State in the first round. So we wanted to play and beat them and knock them out, get them out, put them out to playoffs. And I think we were in a playing Portland, I think, at the time. Uh, and they beat us, went up to Portland, beat them. And we knew we was going to have our hands full because Nelly knew everything about that group. I mean, I had left, but Nelly – and I came back, but Nelly still knew me. You know what I mean? He still knew Stack. He still knew uh, Dirt. Still knew Jason Terry. You know what I mean? He knew all of our guys. I mean, he knew how to stop us, and he knew what type of guys to put on us. And as, as lethal as we was offensively, we just had no – we just had – we just couldn't beat those guys. I mean, they had three or four guys that could guard dirt. Our, our weapon was nobody in the league at the time except for Golden State could guard dirt. And then we just get dirt the ball, and they'd have a seven-foot guy on him, and he'd work him and get us a bucket at any time. They put a six-seven rough uh, Steven Jackson – or uh, who else was on that team? Uh, Al Harrington. Or Matt um, Barnes, I think. Matt Barnes. You know what I mean? They, put, they had three or four guys that could guard Dirk on the perimeter and give him fits. And, and that was, you know, we just couldn't figure those guys out. We won two games. And once we lost that first game, I think everybody on that team in the Golden State locker room knew that they had a great chance to beat us and probably felt like they was going to beat us because it was tough, tough, tough. You think it's hard to win in Golden State now? It was that tough even then, back then, winning in Golden State. And we knew it was going to be, you know, we, our hands were going to be full. And they got the best of us in four to six games. Oh, yeah. I've been to a couple of those Warrior games back in that era. And it, I mean, it was loud as hell in there for sure. Um, I, yeah, I, and, that I, thing, and that series, to be honest with you, that could have changed the whole kind of face of the NBA because we was the best team. Like, the Spurs won the championship that year. But the Spurs, we I think we beat them three out of four. I think they beat us our first game of the season on TV. And then we smacked them the rest of the games. Like, we was way better than – we was better than everybody else in the NBA except for Golden State. And if we win that championship and the Spurs don't win that championship, they don't have the legacy they have. And the Mavs have a better legacy uh, because they probably went, you know, that year and the following year because then they split up the guys a little bit after that. And then, you know, you see what Dirk and him did against Miami a few years later. They probably end up with three championships, and the Spurs probably end up with three 
and then that changed the whole yeah. face of the NBA. Yeah, yeah, that could have changed the course of the history for sure. But uh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. I forgot that you played with like the oldest guy ever, Kevin Willis. I mean, Kevin <laughs> yeah. Willis was forty-four that year. I mean, <laughs> what was the old man strength trying to come off a screen and practice off that guy? That guy was man, built, man. I mean, it, yeah, he was built, and he's probably in the best shape of all of us, man, because he was, <laughs> you know, and he had to be. Obviously, he knew that, so he didn't really drink. He didn't go out and party. Just kept his body together. And us, we've been young dummies. We're going to rip and run and have a good time in the NBA. Uh, but he was a true pro. I still talk to him to this day, man. He's one of the best uh, teammates, best men, best friend I've ever had when it come across the NBA, man, because he was all about winning and doing things the right way and bringing on young guys, showing them how to do things the right way. Unbelievable man, man. Unbelievable. One of the best people you ever meet. Yeah, he was one of my favorite players to watch, too. And yeah. I just loved how he was still effective at such a older age, you know, especially with those Spurs teams, things like that. But uh, Yeah, for sure, yeah. You know, we hear stories about the business of the NBA being pretty ruthless. And I know that you got traded from Dallas to Minnesota after that season. But uh, what was your experience like being traded for the first time? I mean, I hope you didn't find out watching SportsCenter or anything like that, right? No, I found out leaving the, uh, the Texas State Fair, you know what I mean, like 12 o'clock midnight. Man, it oh, was one of those wow. things. Yeah, man, it was uh, it was probably the most difficult thing I had to go through in my life, to be honest with you, uh, because I felt like we had a chance to make another run at it the following year, and then the guy they traded me for was essentially the same guy as me, Trent House, who I grew up with, and he's he grew up in the town next door to me. Um, but they didn't get better with that trade, in my opinion. And they just traded me, and I didn't know why. And I felt, and they traded me to Minnesota, which was, you know, had just got rid of KG, was rebuilding, wasn't thinking about winning, and it was cold as the coldest <laughs> place that ever. You know what I mean, I, I leave Minnesota, I leave Dallas. It's like 105 degrees at the State Fair in October. I get to Minnesota the next day. It's like 32 degrees, and the lakes are already freezing over. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> So it's like, and then I had to get on the plane to go to Turkey for training camp for two weeks. Jeez. So, I mean, that was, yeah, that, it, it was tough, man. It was hard for me to uh, to forgive uh, Avery Johnson and, and Mark Cuban and Donnie Nelson for making that trade because I just felt like they didn't get better. And it was just a slap in the face for some unknown reason. Nobody really ever explained it to me. But obviously you get older, you, you understand the business and you forgive them, but I didn't, I didn't really like that, and I didn't appreciate that, to be honest with you. It was tough. Yeah, well, and especially when you put so much work into a team and, you know, coming off a loss like that, I'm sure there's a lot yeah, of exactly. work to yeah, make a Yeah, exactly. You come push. off a loss like that, you want to get a chance to redeem yourself, man. And I never played in the playoffs after that. I mean, I, I got traded to Minnesota and Memphis, two rebuilding squads. And after those two years, I was like, the hell with basketball, man. I'm going home to be in my family, and I took two years off, and then I got into coaching the following year. Yeah, I was going to say, because that Memphis trade, I mean, it makes my head hurt just reading it because it's a four-team deal. Uh, I mean, it's a, lot, it's a lot of players involved. But so that trade being in your fourth city in four years, that was kind of the tipping point where you kind of decided to hang it up? Or, I mean, yeah, what was man, the next was, move for you? It was that. And, um, I mean, you know how it is. Uh, well, us as players, you know how it is. Once you start getting traded like that, you just become a guy that's going from place to place. And I didn't want to be that. And I had young, small kids, just got married. Uh, so it's like this, you know, I was I felt like I was okay financially and I could take this time off and get away from it and try to get into coaching after the fact. 
uh, take a couple years off, be with my son, help him develop his game and watch my daughters play volleyball and things like that and not have to deal with the stress of the NBA of figuring out where you're going to be next. So it was, you know, I just felt like it was time to give it up and not go keep chasing that dream. Ten years, I mean, how many guys get to play ten years in the NBA? Absolutely. And it's not many, yeah. Especially yeah. when you have kids, too. You know what I mean? Right. You put the kids in the equation, then it's like you really want to move your kids to this city, that city. Right. And, right. I mean, people don't – it's a lot of stuff that people don't think about, you know. Um, no, for sure. You know, so you got into coaching, like you said, after you're playing. Was that a hard transition to go from coach to uh, from player to coach? Not at all, man. And, and it was a blessing that I got traded to Minnesota and and Memphis because they was rebuilding teams, and all the guys were young guys, most of the guys, I should say, and they all came to me asking for advice. How can I do this and that uh, in certain situations? So I was coaching anyway, to be honest with you, those last two years. So it wasn't much of a difference. I think the, the the biggest difference was me having to be at the arena, you know, three or four hours before everybody else. I mean, I would always be early when I played, but three or four hours is a lot. Uh, so yeah. that was the biggest yeah. difference, yeah. Now you um, – are you still coaching? or you, I know you're doing the basketball camp academy thing that you're talking about. Are you still coaching too or no? Yeah, I'm, I'm coaching in uh, Cleveland. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah with the Cavaliers, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So um, I got to ask this question. Um, yep. Did you have a clue Nash was going to get that head coaching job in Brooklyn? <laughs> and then the people that he's brought on, like uh, no. and, you no. know, Mike D'Antoni, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, no one, I don't think nobody knew. I was one, that's probably the best kept secret in the NBA, probably in the history of the NBA, to be honest with you. Um, uh, but I think, you know, him. he has a great relationship with Stat. I mean, makes only makes sense to bring him on. That's how most of us get our jobs is somebody looks out for you and brings you on their staff. And when you got a guy like Dan Tony who coached him, who's a genius on the offensive end, who doesn't have a job, then you'd be a fool. Now, I, I was surprised that Dan Tony took an assistant job. Uh, but on Nash's side, he'd be a fool not to bring him on to, uh, to, to bring some of that high-powered offense with those two guys that he has. <laughs> on that with Kevin Durant and, and Kyrie Irving. I mean, they could be special on the offensive end for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm, I, I'm a huge Knicks fan, so I'm not really excited about all these moves. <laughs> yeah, right, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> We've owned New York forever, and now I'm kind of getting a little nervous. I think yeah. always, always be Well, I mean, the same thing yeah. happened in L.A. with the Clippers. Everybody got nervous, and we'll see what happened with that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah and the Lakers definitely stepped not up. Not do what sure. they're supposed to do, yeah. Hey, we're going to do a quick lightning round, if you don't mind, with you. Just a one- or two-word answer. Zach's going to throw the questions at you. Zach, you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first question is, who's the one coach that had the biggest impact on your career? Jeff Jackson, high school coach. Okay. Uh, who's the one guy that taught you how to be a true professional? Michael Fanley. Who's the one player that you just couldn't figure out how to guard, your toughest cover? Manu Ginobili. Ginobili, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the funniest teammate you've ever had? Funny, Andre Miller. <laughs> okay. Uh, have you ever seen anyone outdrink Dirk? Outdrink Dirk. Not at one <laughs> sitting, but I've had some teammates that could outdrink Dirk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you had to pick one, what is your favorite basketball memory? Favorite basketball memory? Oh, wow. First game in the NBA. Okay, over the dunk. Wow. Okay. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Never thought I'd be in the NBA. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Makes That's sense. awesome. Hey, I wanted to say something real quick. Um, I want to say thank you so much for giving you the giving us the time you gave us. You were super gracious with it. We love talking basketball. It's one of the reasons we love doing this podcast. And we've had a lot of great stories we get to hear. And you told us a, a lot of cool stuff today. I want to thank you for that. Um, I want to give you a, a chance to promote or plug anything. Is there anything that you want to promote or plug? On the I know show? that's all good. Yeah, I, I you know, I mean, this is y'all's show, man. I, I do and I enjoy you guys asked me, I had an unbelievable time with you guys, but you know, I'm not here to plug and be Greg Buckner. Like, you know, some of these athletes are, I'm just here to, to support y'all and hopefully y'all have a good quote unquote ratings. If that's what you get in podcasts and, and you guys become a bigger and more successful show. I appreciate that. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we let Greg out of here? Yeah. Just thanks so much for your time. I always admired your game and watching you grow up was, uh, you know, I always cheered for you and uh, to have you here and pick your brain a little bit has been awesome. And, you know, we appreciate the kind words and your time today. So thank oh, you. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me, fellas. Awesome. Have Stay safe, time, Greg. Man. We'll talk to you soon, my friend. All right. Y'all too. Be good. Take care. Yep. Great interview. Another great one. Yeah. He's awesome, man. He had a lot of really I mean, just good information, good stories, good personality. Uh, and I just love the kind words, you know, just, you know, wishing us well and wishing us, you know, success in our future. I mean, what a great guy. Yeah, I think he can tell. I mean, and I think a lot of guests can tell this. I mean, we're into this really just as we love basketball and especially that time period of basketball where we can sit and pick players' brains. I mean, like he said to you in that one question, that's a great question no one asked me. Yeah. Like, I love that, you know, because it just, it just shows you that, like, we're, like we say it before, we say it at times, we're not hot takers. We're just looking to, like, tell someone's story and, and for you, for the listeners, to get a little bit of better understanding of the player that we're talking to you about, you know, that, and it's amazing. Like, he gave us some really good stuff today, you know what I mean? Like, really yeah. good. The, the Dennis Rodman story alone, <laughs> please, please make that the video clip this week. That's just so yeah. who, who shows up, takes a shower before the game, and then doesn't take a shower after the game. But like yeah, but, I told him, man, like you know, you, you're you're hooking up with chicks like Madonna and Carmen Electra. I'm not going to question it. Yeah, you know, I I mean, Rodman's <laughs> one of the more misunderstood guys in the league. I mean, I, I always I I always loved what he brought to teams. I admired his hustle. I would love to get Rodman on this show. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, Get, I would okay. love to just tap his brain because, you know, other than the basketball stuff and the, and the life he had, he did a lot of definitely things that guys weren't doing. I mean, like he was like hanging out and like going on tour with Pearl Jam and he was, you know, he was wrestling in the WCW. I mean, he was doing like, you know, I mean, you know, we caught a little glimpse of that in the last dance, but I think he's definitely a guy that's got a big heart and he's misunderstood, especially in that time period, too. Like yeah. he was way out there in in that time period, but he, but I think like you said, he was just misunderstood. You yeah. know what I mean? Really? I mean, so but you know, another great interview, like I said, I really enjoyed this one. Greg was amazing. What a cool dude, a lot of good insight. Um, and, and it's crazy, you guys, you know, the listeners, thank you so much. We charted in Japan all last week, which was absolutely amazing. I can't thank he's enough for, for checking us out as much as I did. I mean, a whole week is amazing. Um, a lot, a couple of nice new reviews too. So we appreciate you guys. This is the one plug I always do. If you want to just subscribe to us, man, the pod comes right to you. I mean, there's got, there's always interesting people we got on the show. So it's 
always worth a little subscribe. That way it just comes right to you. And uh, if you want to write a review or give us some stars, that'd be great too. Um, Cause we do really appreciate it. And it gives us an, an awesome opportunity to ask these great questions to these guests that we grew up watching play ball. Um, Zach, is there anything you want to add before, uh, before you get out of here? Uh, just a big thank you to Greg Buckner. And I mean, players like that, I, I find really interesting. Just, you know, guys that really made a difference to every team that they went to. And kind of like we were talking about earlier, he's just such a nightmare, uh, matchup nightmare for other teams, especially in college, is taking the bigs off the dribble and posting up the smaller guards. And if you guys have not seen the dunk, you need to go on YouTube right now and look up the dunk because it is one of those plays that will forever give you chills. One of the, one of the great plays in college basketball, in my opinion. Yeah, we got to throw, throw it up on the social media for a clip. I think that'd be cool with you know, oh. the tag for sure. Um, you know, the other thing I thought was cool before we get out of here is how many really legendary coaches that guy played for. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's going to take him a long way in his coaching, too. And, I mean, he's got a lot of years under his belt, you know, going forward with coaching. And I think playing for the Larry Browns, the Don Nelsons, and um, – all, all these great coaches, man. Rick Barnes. I mean, he's going to have George Carl. He's going to have so much great information and experience to pass on to, yeah. you know, younger kids and the professionals. When your worst coach is Avery Johnson, that says something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when that's a guy that would be at the bottom of your rung if you ranked your coaches, that's yeah. – that's unbelievable. And it show it shows too. I mean, he's what a great guy showing up early to practices too for our young listeners out there, man. And you the know, grades. And the grades. Absolutely the grades, man. Because here's the thing, four hundred and fifty people make the league. A lot of other people aren't, you know, enjoy every day that you live and any accomplishment you make is a great accomplishment. But those grades and other stuff are gonna help you if you don't make the league. You know what I mean? Yeah. You gotta have something to fall back on for sure. So anyway, um, for Zach, I'm Eric. Not my house is out of your house. Thanks for all the support. We love you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.